we're going to be spending a little time together, and I'm just bouncing wildly while Lee gets up to the top to record the session. I can see him pressing buttons on the phone as he goes. Um, uh, and we're going to be looking uh, at what mental health is. We're going to be looking a little bit at how we can help those in our churches struggling with mental health. But probably the majority of the time is going to be spent at looking at uh, how our own mental health uh, can be uh, struggles, can be both a, a blessing and also a challenge within ministry. Uh, and we're going to build a little bit on what Kirsty was doing this morning in looking at how uh, we can promote good mental health uh, in ourselves and in our colleagues. Uh, for those of you who, who haven't met me before, I work for an organisation called Biblical Counselling UK. Uh, that is a relatively new organisation. We're, we're less than 10 years old, so we can't compete with church society at all on longevity, I'm afraid. Uh, but we're an organisation that exists to help churches and help Christians connect the very deeply painful realities of life to the riches of scripture. Uh, and in doing so, find beauty and hope and help to persevere. My own personal background, uh, unlike most of my colleagues who were psychologists or, or psychiatrists uh, in years gone by, uh, I have got a scientific background. I was a, a biochemist, did biochemistry of behaviour for a while. Uh, but basically, uh, I also stand before you as someone that is a mess. Uh, and I say that uh, with not a hint of shame. As someone who has come from a very chaotic background myself, uh, of addiction and anxiety and depression, uh, and now is, have been in ministry for 20 years. Uh, and every year of those 20 years has been done with a limp uh, through my own mental health struggles. Uh, so I hope I've got some expertise to bring from a scientific background, some expertise to bring from a, a counselling background, uh, but also just a fellow limper. Uh, and so if any of you feel like you're limping right now, uh, please know you are in good company. The best place for any limping Christians to start is prayer. So why don't we begin there? Father God, thank you uh, that you are a good and a gracious God. Thank you that you are strong and wise and holy and sovereign and yet so intimate and kind, uh, so tender in the way, way that you deal with uh, your children. Father, as we think about uh, this issue of mental health, I'm conscious that this might be deeply personal for some of us and so I ask for your comfort and your strength. But I ask too, Lord, that as we turn to, to your word, as we turn to you, as we learn from each other, that there will be real hope in this seminar and a real equipping from the word that will enable us to persevere and to spur others on to love and good works too. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, there is going to be a little bit of chatting to your neighbours as we go through uh, this morning. And next need to work out how to do... Oh, doesn't respond to keys, does respond to touchscreen. How exciting. Um, how to uh, manage your stress in seminars 101. <laughs> the local church, we're all in them. Uh, we all love them most of the time, uh, at least. But we're all deeply aware that the local church is full of people who are struggling. So why don't you just turn to someone near you, twos, threes, whatever works for where you happen to be sitting. If you have a deep desire not to talk to anybody, nobody will take it personally, just have a quiet think. What kind of mental health struggles do you see in local churches, uh, amongst people that you're pastoring alongside, amongst people that you're training alongside? Um, don't name names, that could get awkward. Uh, but just let's look at some of the, the, the smorgasbord of struggles that we're facing in the local church every day. Two minutes. Okay, let's, uh, let's come back together again. Um, we won't feedback from every group systematically. I think we've probably got an idea. Uh, but what kind of things are relatively common in, in your settings? Anyone want to shout something out? Anxiety. Anxiety. It's huge, isn't it? Especially in the last 18 months. Uh, we were looking at statistics before the pandemic of about one in six people would struggle with anxiety at some point. Uh, during the height of the pandemic, 66% of those who were surveyed say they had experienced anxiety in the previous two weeks. That's the kind of massive increase in anxiety that we have seen in the last couple of years. And whilst it is now decreasing, um, it hasn't gone. Uh, we're still at much higher levels of anxiety than we have been before. And I'm guessing a lot of us in this room can feel that, uh, either from personal experience or the conversations we're having around. Uh, what else is very common uh, in your experience in ministry? 
inner city ministry, lots of trauma and uh, deep city trauma. Absolutely. And that's going to vary hugely from uh, environment to environment, what kind of um, proportion that's going to be. But every church is going to have some people uh, that struggle with trauma. But certain sectors of society, uh, that number is going to be uh, massively increased. Uh, I'm part of a, a small working party in the southwest of London, just looking at how to reach out to, to North Korean uh, refugees. We have about 400 North Korean refugees on our doorstep. Uh, so it seems sensible. Uh, to, to try and reach out to them. And statistics um, recently published indicate that of the women refugees in those 400 people, 70% uh, of them have experienced rape or sexual exploitation uh, in the last 10 years. It's just an astonishing number. Now, that's not going to be replicated in uh, the white, more middle-class church that I go to on a Sunday. But there are certain communities where trauma is just huge. A couple of other things. Uh, what else is out there? Um, we're very much involved in a serious domestic abuse situation. Um, mm. So we're kind of very deeply involved in one. But the statistics I'm hearing is it's huge. It's another epidemic and it's not bigger during lockdown. Absolutely. I think, <clears throat> don't, don't necessarily quote me on this because I can't quite remember, but I think the increase um, uh, to helplines was about 200%. Mm. Um, over the pandemic and, and you can see that can't you if you're already in a, in a toxic relationship within the home if there's already sort of abuse starting to happen being put into four small walls and some people's walls really are very geographically small yeah. where you can't really escape from each other you know that that's that's gonna uh, cause an increase um, thankfully uh, a lot of response it has been put into domestic abuse. There is a lot of emergency accommodation uh, and support out there, but it is it's hard, isn't it? It's really hard uh, working with those particular uh, scenarios. One more, maybe, uh, a common thing that you're facing. Um, personality, personality disorders. And I think they're probably personality disorders are one of the most complex pastoral situations that you can face in any local church. Because you have before you a precious image bearer uh, who, who might love Jesus very much and whom you want to love very deeply. But at their worst, they're not going to understand boundaries at all. Uh, and I have one dear sister in Christ who I try and walk alongside from time to time. It, it can easily be 20, 22 phone calls a day when she's at her worst uh, and I want to love her but you know what it's like you can't answer the phone 22 times to the same person in one day so working out how to love that person and nurture that person and and help her understand that if I if I don't pick up the phone to her 22 times that's that's not an act of hate or rejection that's just an act of me managing my time in a way that honors God that is so complex and we're not going to be spending a lot of time looking at that one because that is uh, the very complex end, but very happy to chat about that uh, as we go through. Well, we shouldn't be surprised because this is not just a local church. This is every local church. It will vary a little bit from church to church exactly uh, what the struggles are. Some churches uh, will have uh, be in an area where there is a massive crack problem. Uh, other churches, crack is uh, a million miles away. Uh, from what the congregation and community are using day by day. But every single person, every single church is going to struggle with something. Of course, it wasn't supposed to be this way. Rewind time to Genesis 1 and 2. We, we find a, a beautiful world, a, a perfect world, where human beings are in a perfect relationship with God, a perfect relationship with each other, and a perfect relationship with the world in which they are living. There is no such thing as mental illness in Genesis 1 and 2. And of, of course, there will be a time when mental illness goes away. Now, that's not the best bit about heaven. The best bit about heaven is Jesus. But my goodness, I'm, I'm really looking forward to mental illness going away as well. No more stress, no more anxiety, no more depression. Never waking up, not wanting to get out of bed. Never feeling the burden of, of guilt that's unrelenting. Never having irrational thoughts go through your mind. That is going to be one of the glories of heaven. But of course, we, we don't live in those bookends. We don't live in Genesis 1 and 2. We don't live in Revelation 21 and 22. I, I don't need to explain this to you. you. You know how biblical theology goes. We're in the bit in the middle. We're waiting. And that bit in the middle hurts. 
Because ever since Genesis 3, ever since that rebellion in the Garden of Eden, we have been people who are broken. We've got broken relationships, primarily, of course, a broken relationship with God, but also broken relationships with the people around us. We have broken experiences in, in all kinds of ways. If I did a survey of everybody in this room and, and told, asked you about the different ways that different people had hurt you across the years, we would be in tears within half an hour, just listening to the catalogue, the litany of the ways that we have been hurt, the ways that we have been criticised, the ways that we have been betrayed, the ways that we have been burdened beyond what we feel we can cope with there will be an enormous amount of pain, broken experiences in our past, in our present, and we have uncertain futures. I mean, not uncertain from God's perspective. He knows what our future is. Not uncertain in terms of our final destination. There is a happy ending for those who are in Christ. But next week, next month, well, you and I don't exactly know whether that's going to get better or whether it's going to be massively harder than now and those broken experiences impact our bodies they impact our minds I don't know if you've seen any uh, recent research there's been some publicity in the newspapers recently but we're moving away from a medical model or a purely medical model of things like depression now for, for a while for a few decades we've been in a this is a, a biochemical imbalance and, and now researchers are going well maybe there is a biochemical imbalance we're not knocking that but actually just look at what people are going through. Look at how hard life is. It's the tough stuff of life that impacts our mental well-being. And we can't underplay what the bullying, the abuse, the slander, what that does to our minds. Of course, it's not just the stuff that's coming at us uh, that impacts our mental health. It's, it's what's going on inside us. We are embodied souls. There, there is a biochemistry inside of us. And, and whilst... We don't want to pin everything on our biochemistry. We can't ignore it's there. You know, neurotransmitters, hormones, uh, they, they have an impact on how we live. Uh, some of us might be on medication, which has a side effect of increasing anxiety. Some of us uh, might have medical conditions, which actually increase a sense of being down. There is a very real physical element to our mental health. And as Christians, we don't want to ignore that. But thirdly, and, and most unpopularly as, as Christians, we also need to talk about not just what comes at us or happens inside us, but what comes out of us too. Calvin's heart, the idol factory, constantly leading us to want things that are not good for us or, or at least want things too much. The over-desires that Ephesians talks about. What do I mean by that? Well, for example, there's nothing wrong with me wanting to be married. That's a perfectly okay thing for me to talk to God about. But if I tell God and I tell myself that the only way I could ever be happy would be to be married, then if I'm not married, then instantly I'm thinking, well, God hasn't given me what I need. And that builds up a sort of resentment. And I feel like I'm living a second class life. Uh, and, and that all impacts on my mental health. I, uh, there's stuff coming out of me which is actually dragging my mind down as well. It's not just what's coming at us or happening inside us. Well, with that kind of biblical backdrop uh, at play, it's worth teasing out what mental illness actually is. Uh, and here's a quote uh, that might be helpful from a, a book from IVP published uh, just a few years ago now that's uh, definitely worth a read. Uh, it's a behavioural syndrome or a, a collection of signs and symptoms uh, the result from a response to some objective cause, whether that's external, as in something that's happened to us, or internal, something biological, uh, which may be physical or psychological. Uh, and these signs and symptoms produce clinically significant impairment in everyday functioning. Now, until we get to that last bullet point, every one of us will be going, well, yes, I've got some signs and symptoms that relate to what's happened to me or what's going on inside me. Uh, but for it to be a mental illness, there has to be a, a threshold uh, a clinically significant response. Uh, and once we get to those clinically significant responses, we get a whole host of descriptions, uh, which is basically what diagnoses are. And, and it's worth reflecting on that. Diagnoses in mental health aren't like diagnoses in physical health. So if you have coronavirus, you can, you can have a, a blood test and you can actually pinpoint the little critter that's going around your body, causing all the signs and symptoms. 
you, you can't genuine, generally do that with mental illness. Uh, a diagnosis of mental illness is someone looking at your life, observing what you've been through, observing how you're responding to that, and categorising it. That's not to say there isn't any physical symptoms, it's just not uh, quantifiable in quite the same way. You can sometimes hear people talking about depression being caused by you know, too little serotonin, but the, the reality is nobody knows how much serotonin we're supposed to happen. So it's have. So you don't really know when you're low on serotonin or not. We just know that if you give your body a little bit extra, it, it tends to have happy effects. But it's not as objective as maybe some of the other kinds of diagnosis might be. And I'm not going to go through that list in any detail. But you can see there, there are a massive number of categories. Uh, and if you ever uh, want to uh, read about those uh, and build up muscle tone by picking up what must be one of the heaviest books in the world, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Psychiatric Disorders, um, edition number five, uh, is both an interesting read and an astonishingly weighty tome if it happens to land on your head, as it did, unfortunately, once when my pastor was moving office. <laughs> but moving on. These are the struggles of our embodied soul. But if that's mental illness, what, what is mental health? Because mental health isn't just about saying, well, I haven't got schizophrenia. I mean, a number of us will say, look, I haven't got schizophrenia, or I haven't got bipolar, or I haven't got diagnosable depression, but I still don't feel right. I still don't feel positive and joyful and able to thrive. I, I feel like I, I am struggling, even if I haven't got a diagnosis. Well, the, the World Health Organization uses this um, particular definition um, of mental health or, or well-being uh, as a, another phrase that's often used fairly interchangeably. Not just the absence of a mental disorder, it's a state of well-being in which every individual realises his or her own potential and can cope with the normal stresses of life, can work productively and fruitfully, and is able to make a contribution to her or his community. That's what it means to be healthy in the world's eyes. That's what it means to, to have well-being. Of course, it is worth noting that Jesus is not in that definition and of course, in the World Health Organization, you probably wouldn't be expecting uh, Jesus to be in that definition. But as Christians, what, what, what would it look like to have that through a biblical lens? Well, <clears throat> maybe Hebrews 10 is the way to go. Uh, a, a biblically healthy Christian life uh, is acknowledging the painful fallenness of our world, acknowledging the brokenness of our bodies but also being able to respond to that call to persevere through life with our eyes fixed on Jesus, able to express our emotions to the Lord and rely on him wholeheartedly, and together with our brothers and sisters in Christ, continue to worship him, become more like him and live for him in the ways we think, speak, and towards others. It's worth noting that this isn't a call to, to soar like eagles above the pain of the world and not be impacted by it. We're not supposed to be stoic. I remember when I was a, a young, much younger Christian um, and getting even more things wrong than I do now. Um, there's been growth. And I remember speaking at this conference in oh, it's the Gambia, I think. And I was talking about how I had um, persevered through the death of my parents. Now, my, my parents had died very close together, uh, just very few uh, days apart. And it had been a particularly uh, traumatic time. And I remember someone coming up to me after that conference going, Helen, I want to be just like you. You know, that moment where you kind of flush slightly and think, I've got it right. And then he came up with it, I want to be someone that is not affected by the hard things of life. And my heart sunk and I realised I got it horribly, horribly wrong. The Christian call is to persevere, but, but not to pretend that we're okay. It's to be sensitive to the hard things of life, to lament. I mean, my goodness, how much lament is in the Bible? We see Jesus lamenting, we, we see David lamenting, we see Jeremiah lamenting. There's an entire book of the Bible called Lamentations, uh, which gives us five different kinds of lament. And there's plenty more beside. We're meant to feel the pain, the brokenness, but we're not destroyed by it. We persevere through it because of the goodness of God. Well, I'm going to stop for questions in a moment, but it's worth just looking at the fact that this is 
this is not without its complexities. It's not enough to say that if, you're, if you don't have a mental illness, you are healthy, or, or, or if you are, have good well-being, then you can't possibly be ill. There, there are lots of different permutations and combinations of how health and, and, and illness can intertwine with one another. Now, the worst case scenario is if you are in the bottom right of that quadrant on the screen there. You have a, a diagnosable mental illness, maybe schizophrenia, maybe bipolar, maybe uh, depression, but you also have poor well-being. Uh, and that means you, you have something clinically tough going on in your life, uh, but actually you're probably quite isolated. Uh, you're not able to persevere through it. Maybe the medication is not kicking in in the ways that anyone would expect. Uh, you're, you're finding it hard just to get out in the mornings at all. Uh, the best case scenario is to be on the, the top left of that quadrant. Uh, that is when you have no diagnosis whatsoever and also you're loving life. I mean, it's great on those days when you're there, aren't there? No mental illness. You've got, you see yourself as God sees you. You've got fantastic relationships. You've got a real sense of purpose. You bounce out of bed like a bunny in the morning and praise the Lord. You're off to serve him in the fields that he's called you to. I'm hoping one or two of us have experienced a few of those days. But let's face it, it doesn't happen every week. Most of us will be in the other two quadrants potentially with a, a diagnosable uh, illness like depression or anxiety or, or something clinically more complex than that, but actually doing quite well. The medication's working. People love us. We've got people around us to, to help pick us up on the bad days and help persevere. We've got a, a faith that is, that is working. We're turning to the Lord uh, and we're seeing glimpses of his glory and goodness. Or, or maybe that actually we, we are struggling we, we feel a bit lonely. We, we, we're not quite sure what our purpose is. We, we feel down. But actually, it's not something clinical. It's not something that can't be overcome. It's not something that necessarily has to stay for the rest of our lives. Most of us will live in those quadrants. But whatever quadrant you feel you are in right now, that will impact how you do ministry. It will impact how you receive help from others. It will impact what you need. Well, I'm going to go on in a moment to look at uh, how we help those with mental health struggles in our church before looking at how maybe some people can help us. But as we look at that definition stuff, that diagnostic stuff, any initial questions at that point, I wouldn't want to go on if anyone's feeling bamboozled or overcome with ire that I have in some way led you astray um, uh, anything so far. No. Great. We, oh, sorry. Yeah, go on. Well, yeah, um, it, it, maybe you're going to come on to this, but we, we are all of us somewhere on that spectrum of well-being. Yeah. And we're dealing pastorally with people who are always on a spectrum of well-being. So there's that question in the back of my mind about where, um, you know, how, how my sense of well-being impacts the way I pastorally care for somebody else's sense of well-being. And to what extent do I need to share myself with them so that that's kind of empathic, but also how do I need to show I'm strong so I can help them? Mm. And you're absolutely right, we are coming on to that, so hold that thought. And if by any chance I haven't covered that in half an hour's time, uh, feel free to make a pair of your aeroplane and launch it in this direction, and I will remember what we're going to do. But great question, thank you. Well, we are called to help those who are struggling uh, with their mental health. Uh, and actually, it is a privilege and a call to help those people uh, struggling with their mental health because they are precious image bearers. They are people who Jesus loves very much, either image bearers who are not yet Christians or, or people that are his children in his family, who he adores, who he delights in. Uh, our brothers and sisters who, with whom we are uh, in unity. Uh, and it is... It can be hard. I don't want to underplay how hard it can be sometimes. But there is also a beauty and a joy in helping somebody who is going through a tough time. Now, there are a few traps we want uh, to uh, avoid. Uh, I am at the Church Society, um, so I'm, I'm guessing that I'm not at the extremes of theological perspectives here. Um, uh, Lee is nodding, so, you know, it's all good. But it is worth saying that we don't want an over-realised eschatology in any of our pastoral care. It's not come to Jesus and you'll never be anxious again. 
It's not come to Jesus and you will never be depressed again. It's certainly not give more than your tithe and your problems will go away. Very sadly, um, I've spoken at a, a number of conferences. There's one particular conference. I had 200 people in front of me, nearly all of them disenfranchised from a, a certain network of churches. And they'd stopped going to church because when they talked to their pastors about their struggles, it was pray more, have faith more, give more, uh, and don't doubt your healing. If you do, you're a bad Christian and don't come back. Now, I'm guessing that's not the dominant theology in our churches, but it, it's still worth doing a double check because it, it, we can, especially in our evangelism, want to paint Jesus as rightly so beautiful that our troubles melt away in his glory. Uh, and the trouble is, it, in the new earth and the new creation, yes, they do. But, but for now, often our struggles carry on. Uh, and it's worth just doing a double check of our evangelistic messages in particular, uh, whether we sometimes overplay uh, the, the healing uh, that can come now. Uh, we certainly don't want to shun medical experience either. Again, I imagine not probably a massive issue in, the, in this room, but time and time again, I, I hear people say, uh, I, I was taking medication for my bipolar, uh, but someone prayed over me uh, and now I've stopped and you know you're just days away from a crash uh, at that point. Uh, and, and so actually saying, look, medication's important. There's nothing shameful about a Christian taking medication. We're embodied souls and sometimes our bodies need help. And talking people through that is desperately important. But, but at the other end, we don't want to be underplaying God's activity. It's not that God's got nothing to say on depression or anxiety or bipolar. It's not that he's irrelevant to that. I think we've seen that a little bit historically in the church. You, know, you go to the Puritans and you see this wealth of literature, uh, which, which shows they really understood pain. They really understood darkness and despair, and they really understood how to, to bring God's word into that. But, but as we go through history... We really find, you know, the early 20th century, an outsourcing of mental health problems from the church. Uh, and by that, I'm not knocking referring to doctors. That's a good thing to do, but only referring to doctors. I remember a, a pastoral situation uh, not so long ago, uh, talking to uh, an incumbent about someone that had recently tried to take their life. And I was saying, well, uh, shall we talk over what, what our role in the church can be? You know, you as the incumbent, me as someone that's, you know, helping... Uh, and his, and his response was, he doesn't need a pastor, he needs a psychiatrist. And this is a really well-taught, lovely, godly man. Not, not, not some, someone that's just started a church because he fancied it. Well-trained, well-thought through. But there's that sense of, but it's other, it's out there, it's different, it needs a specialist. My gentle, maybe not so gentle, response was... That person needs both. They probably do need a psychiatrist, absolutely. But they need Jesus. How much they need Jesus for the light and the hope that they need. And we don't want to underplay uh, the transformational power uh, of God's community, the church. I um, have had a lot of struggles over the years. Food was a massive struggle for me uh, for many, many years. And I was so grateful uh, for a Christian family who had no psychological training, no Christian counselling training, uh, nothing whatsoever. That They had a dinner table and a blind dog that kept crashing into the wall because he couldn't see where he was going. Uh, and all we did was meet once a month around the dinner table. And they had a little tradition uh, that everyone would go around the table and say something that they were thankful to God for before we ate. Uh, and then we ate as much or as little as we wanted to. Was that therapeutic? Not in the classical sense. Was it nuanced and skilled? Well, not particularly. Um, most people can make pasta and say something they're thankful for. Was it transformational? Yes. Because it, it made me accountable for what I was eating at least one day in a month. It gave me a community of people to eat with, which made eating something social rather than something terrifying. Was it something that lifted my eyes? Absolutely, because I was listening to my own and other people's testimony of God's goodness in that past week. It was something beautiful that encouraged me to eat, even when I didn't want to. Doesn't need anything training, anything specialist, but a massive impact on someone that was really struggling. 
And all of us in churches, um, if you want a book uh, on how to do pastoral care, um, Paul Tripp's Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands it is wonderful. And it, it has just four words in it that you need to know. And if you remember nothing else from this seminar, four words for you here for how to do pastoral care. Love, know, speak, do. Absolutely anybody in our congregation, no matter how big their mental health struggles, we can love them. And we can show them that God loves them too. They are welcome in the family. They are, they are precious in God's sight. We can give them time, not limitless time, but we can give them time uh, and we can be attentive to them. We can get to know them. We can listen to them because everyone's story is different. Um, no, no two people with depression have the same uh, experience of depression. So actually getting to know the person is important. What's it like for you? How does it feel? What are the thoughts going through your minds? What, what are the tough moments? Which, which point of the day is most difficult? It, don't ask all those questions all in one day. But, you know, over a period of time, just be getting to know people, really getting to know them, not their diagnosis. And that will show how much you value them. Uh, and then as you get to know them, you, you can speak words into their life. Um, often depression or anxiety or any mental health struggle will cause us to think of some lies. Uh, God doesn't love me. The world is out of control. Uh, I, I'm, I'm just guilty and there's nothing uh, that can be done about it. I'm all alone. All of those lies come at us when we have mental health struggles. It's never going to get better. It will always be like this. I can never change. And when we really hear what people are saying, then we can actually apply God's word very specifically. Not, not just going for the obvious first. Oh, I'm really, really anxious today. Well, have you considered some lilies and some sparrows? Not knocking that verse of scripture. It is precious. It is God's word. But applied tritely. I mean, there's a lovely little buttercup out there. It is nice, but glancing at it does not bring me a sense of well-being that is going to change my life. Now, if I really think deeply about God's plans and provision for that buttercup, then we're getting a bit closer. But actually, a lot of what people need in their anxiety isn't a verse telling them not to be anxious. But it's looking at something a bit deeper. Oh, everything's out of control. Have you read Mark 1 to 8 recently and seen Jesus's sovereign control over everything? Oh, I'm all alone. Should we just take a moment to look at Psalm 139? And reflect on how you can't go from the east or the west or the heights or the depths to get away from the Lord. Oh, my goodness me, I can never change. Let's talk a little bit about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, can we? Let's look at what he is actively doing in your life right now. But I'm so guilty, why would God want to help me? Well, let's just go back and look at the cross one more time. And see, you know, not just that Jesus died for the sins of that Lord out there. But he died for your sins too. And that was sufficient. That was enough. There is no condemnation now. But isn't it going to be hard for the next 30 years? I don't know, maybe. But it's not going to be hard for the 30,000 years afterwards. Let's do what Kirsty was reflecting on this morning. Looking at heaven. Half an hour might be too much for me. I'll start thinking about breakfast. But... But looking at heaven, the glories, the wonder of what is to come. Well, why don't you just take uh, uh, two minutes again to talk uh, in your twos or threes. Uh, and just think of someone in your congregation uh, that is struggling right now. Uh, and think of, again, don't name names because we might just pick it up on the recording if you're not careful. And that wouldn't, that wouldn't be kind to the, to the people we love dearly. But think about how you can do something to love them, something to know them better, how you can say something to them that will spur them on. And then finally do practical, hopefully that's self-explanatory, take around a meal, give them a lift to church, something like that. So just two, three minutes in your little groups. Think practically about how you can do love, no, speak, do in your church. And then we're going to get a bit more personal after that. Okay, let's uh, come back together again. You won't have uh, solved everything in that conversation, but hopefully a, a sense of direction can start to form. What, what do we expect after our pastoral care? Well, not that everything will be all better. Certainly not after the first pastoral chat, probably not after the 12th. Um, one thing that we have to be very conscious of as people in ministry is that we can't fix it. 
Um, you might think I'm slightly mad at this point, but I have a hippo in every room where I do pastoral care. Why do I have a hippo? Yes, why? <laughs> it's a good question, isn't it, Neil? Why? Why do I have a hippo? You know that bit of Job uh, where, you know, Job's had everything, lost everything, um, been restored in many ways, and he says to the Lord, what was that about? I mean, I realise that's not my most forensic exposition of Job ever, but you get the, you get the general idea. And God doesn't give him a, these are the ten reasons why this has happened to you. What God gives to Job is, do you know when the sea monster's going to jump? Do you know when the lion's going to give birth? Do you know when the eagle's going to take flight? Do you know, do you know, do you know? All of which, of course, begs the question, answer, no, because you're God uh, and I'm not. And in my deeply, highly theologically trained mind, I call that the can you make a hippo passage? Uh, And the basic rule of thumb is if you can make a hippo by speaking a word, then you're God. And if you can't make a hippo by speaking a word, then you're not. All you can ever do is point people to God. Uh, Now, I'm not very good at remembering that. I I like to be competent, omnicompetent. I like to make things better. Uh, One of my lovely ex-pastors used to say to me, Helen, take your cape off. It doesn't help. You're not superwoman. Just be Helen. Um, And and to help counteract that, I just have a hippo. No, I mean, not a big hippo, little hippo. Uh, In in my line of sight, whenever I'm typing emails, whenever I'm doing counselling, whenever I'm doing a one-to-one with somebody, because as I get my ego getting out of control and out of control and out of control, I look and suddenly my eye lands on a hippo and my brain goes, you can't make this better. Stop trying. Point them to Jesus. They are who they need. So, Pick a hippo. It doesn't have to be a hippo, uh, but whatever works for you. Uh, do have that kind of reminder that you can't fix people, but what you can do is point people to hope. And you can point people to the experience of love. You can help them experience love. You can show them and include them in community. You can enable them or encourage them to persevere. You can help them build trust in their living Lord. You can help them know what it's like to feel stronger day by day, to have more confidence in the shepherd that is leading them forward. You can help them to know real change. Maybe not an end to anxiety, but a greater confidence that God is at work. Maybe not an end to depression, but a a contention that darkness is not all there is. There can be a change in people's thinking, as Kirsty was pointing us to a little earlier on. But if all of that is helping us to be sure and confident that there are things that we can practically do to help those in our congregation, it it does beg the question, well, what about us? If we're really struggling, is ministry the place for us? If if we haven't started formal word ministry yet, or ordained ministry, then should we even be thinking about it? If we have started, should we be staying in it? Should we be taking a sabbatical? You know, none of us are perfect. Of course, we realise that, you know, no one that stands up in that pulpit has ever got it all sorted. But but what's the threshold for actually going, you know what, maybe, just maybe this this isn't for me? Well, I'm not going to ask for any feedback from this. This is just two minutes uh, with someone next to you. Um, quick gut reaction. For someone with significant mental health struggles, I'm talking about gets a little bit sad sometimes, but significant mental health struggles, what's your gut reaction? Is ministry a good place to be? I'm not going to ask you to feedback from the floor, just be honest from your heart uh, and see where you get to, and then we're going to tease that out in more detail. Okay, let's uh, come back together again. It's not clear cut, is it? As I was... um, as I was listening to uh, a number of your conversations, which is the privilege of seminar leaders at conferences like this, I think the common theme was, well, yes, and, and no. It's not as clear cut, is it? There are some ways you want to go, broken leadership is, is the model of the Bible. But actually, is there a limit of too, too much broken? Will ministry break you even more? Um, it's difficult to tease out, and I don't want to oversell what we can do in the next 25 minutes. We're probably not going to come up with the definitive answer for every single person in, in every situation. But if you're anything like me, underneath that big question about is ministry a good idea, there are a whole kind of personal questions. Some of them, if you're struggling with your own mental health, 
uh, there are questions like, well, God, does God really love me? And, and sometimes that tug towards ministry is, well, maybe God will love me if I can prove that I'm, I'm good at ministry, if I can prove that I'm a good preacher, if I can prove that I'm a good pastor. Can, can God still use me? Often we might feel so completely broken that it would be impossible uh, for God to use anyone like us. Will the congregation trust me? I mean, that is an important question. Are we likely to do something or say something, act in a way uh, that would break the trust with the congregation? Will ministry be a better working environment for me than the secular world? We won't go into that one. Not while the microphone's on. Will ministry break me? I think we all know people for whom they have broken in the context of ministry. It's not unusual to find people uh, that have crumbled uh, under the pressure of working in the ways that they have been. Uh, well, my struggles may be their strength. Uh, you, know, you know, it may or may not be wise, but could there be some benefits of, of actually being someone that struggles in ministry? And, and as we've already had posed to us, how open should I be? There's a right sense in which, as Paul said with his churches, he shared lives. But how much is too much? And how much do you share with individuals? I was chatting to one of my pastors not so long ago, and I, I said, I'm really quite open about a lot of my struggles, except for the one that's really hitting me right now. That one I'm not going to speak from a conference stage. That one's too raw. That one's too real. That's the one that's making me cry at night. I'm not sharing that with a couple of hundred people. The ones that are a bit more resolved. Yeah, they're up for grabs. I don't mind people knowing that. What about strategies for support? I mean, in some churches, it's great, isn't it? Big church team, lots of people with lots of different gifts, all able to work together, structures above you that are really pastoral. But it's not always like that. Sometimes it's rather more isolated. Sometimes key people within the church are maybe not as pastorally supportive as you might like them to be. Is it even prejudicial to be even posing questions like this? Surely we have rights in law that mean that no matter what our disability, we should be able to do any job that we like. Well, they're good questions. And I want to be completely honest with you because I'm going to be talking about honesty and openness for you lot, well, in your churches, in your environment. So it's only right that I am open and honest with you to an appropriate sense in a, in a conference in that I am in ministry I have been in various kinds of Christian work uh, for 21 years now um, and, and I am broken I do limp I, I struggle with depression I have done uh, my whole life I, I struggle with anxiety after a particularly traumatic uh, pastoral event I, I was given the diagnosis of PTSD uh, a number of years ago now I am someone that's come from a background of addiction. You never entirely lose that background of addiction. I am someone uh, that struggles um, to see myself right, to see God right. Someone that struggles not to, to react to the legacy of brokenness that was in my childhood. That is me, standing before you as weak and limping, often tearful and frequently getting it wrong but I am in ministry. I'm not necessarily going to do absolutely every kind of ministry, but I'm here. I'm still standing. I have great colleagues who occasionally have to pick me up off the ground. I have people that spur me on. I have people that hold me accountable. I have people that give me a swift kick in a non-physical sense of the word. I have people that will just have you round and feed me. And I have days when I don't need any of that. But I have plenty of days when I do. And whilst all of us are going to be in a different place on that spectrum, all of us are going to be there somewhere. All of us are going to have at least some days when we feel we can't do this anymore. Some of us are going to have days months, years, where it feels impossible. And so let's tease out 
what is useful and good and beautiful and, and can be used to God's glory about that brokenness. But let's also be honest about what some of the traps and the pitfalls are. Uh, and maybe some of the strategies that we can put in place just to stop things getting worse, to stop us going over the cliff. Uh, but also, maybe some safeguards that we need to be able to do our job well. Because people need us to point to them to Jesus with confidence. Not with self-confidence. Not in, I can do this all by myself. Not knocking what Kirsty was saying earlier, but there is that sense of it's confidence in the Lord, not just ourselves. But we want to be doing it in a way that is wise and good for the glory of God. So just a bit of prelim. Struggles are not usually a barrier to service. You know, look at the Bible. What a complete catalogue of messes God uses to his glory. Whether it's people that were sexually immoral, people that tended towards despair, people that that feared in in caves, people that didn't like speaking in public, uh, people that had quite criminal history. I mean, it is a colossal number of murderers we have writing different pages of our Bible. Uh, You know, we have people with a past, people with struggles uh, all over the place. Struggling is not a barrier to ministry in and of itself. And all we have to do is look around at people we love and respect and see how much they're limping too. At least I hope we can. If we do too much hiding in ministry, people can't see that. Uh, But when we let people in, then we can. But that doesn't mean we always, always go for ministry. And it doesn't mean we always go for ministry now. Now, I, I don't know where each of you are at in your, in your stages of, of thinking about ministry. Many of you are in ministry already. I think some of you are still thinking about it. But I think just a few caveats. There are safeguarding considerations. So there are some psychiatric struggles uh, which have a tendency to lead towards violence. They might have a preoccupation with something like uh, children and, and sexuality, uh, a use of child pornography, things like that. You are loved, you're still in the body of Christ, you are nurtured, but ministry is probably not going to be for you. If, if those criminal safeguarding, you're likely to put somebody at danger kind of categories are true, then, then just walk away from ministry. There'll be other ways that you can honour the Lord. There'll be other things that you can do, but ordained ministry is not likely to be for you. I'm guessing most of us aren't in that category, uh, but just a, a, a word uh, for the few that, that, that might be uh, out there. And it's so tempting, isn't it, to think that I, I, I can get it under control. If I, I just push it to one side, I can, I can mortify that bit and it'll be OK. It, it, it always bubbles up again. Don't put yourself, don't put other people uh, in a position where it will be unsafe. Uh, and then, of course, there is a sense of wisdom. Um, it's fine to, to go into ministry struggling with anxiety and depression, uh, but if the thought uh, of actually standing up in front of people and giving a sermon is going to cause a panic attack every single Sunday morning, it means you're never sleeping Saturday night. It means that you're absolutely hideous to your entire family for the several days while you're doing uh, sermon prep. If it means you're going to be sobbing into your roast dinner on a Sunday lunchtime. It's not that you're banned from ministry, but seriously, why would you want to? You know, don't put yourself and your family through that. Again, there are other ways to serve. Now, it might be that you can conquer that anxiety and at some point in the future flourish in ministry. Happy days. But, you know, there are wisdom things. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to be able to give sermons and talks without flinching to be suitable for ministry. But, but if it's overwhelming, if it's going to be detrimental to you and everyone around you and you look forward and you see that this is just going to end up breaking me, the church, my family, then it's probably not wise. Talk it over with a friend, talk it over with a, a wise pastor uh, and tease it out. But, but don't run headlong towards the edge of a cliff and expect it to be okay. There is wisdom in going, there are other ways to serve. And it's okay to wait. I remember when I first uh, gave up some of my addictions, I was so keen to tell people what Jesus had done in my life. You know, the testimony of like, I, I'm a different person now. I, I, I can see light. I can speak. I, I'm sober. There is, there is joy in my life. I want people to know. And I had a very wise group of people around me that said, baby steps. Tell people, tell your friends. Tell your non-Christian friends, Absolutely then maybe in a, a year or so, 
Once it's bedded in, once, once you're confident we're consistently heading in the right direction, tell the congregation. Uh, and then, you know, give it you know, a few more years and, well, you know, I'm likely to be doing a conference talk. Why don't you come up and give your testimony at the end of that? Okay. Ten years before you start teaching other people how to get through their addictions. Now, not everyone would agree with that. Some people say the moment uh, you battle an addiction, get out there, help others. And, and there's a sense that's right. You want to be serving straight away. But there's a difference between encouraging another person on a one-to-one level and being that person in the pulpit uh, that's proclaiming uh, what, what God has done and, and what God is doing elsewhere. You don't have to rush into ministry. It's not a race. You don't have to have got to be the youngest curious curate in your diocese. You, you don't need to be the youngest incumbent there's ever been. Uh, you don't need to have published your first book by the time you're 30. It doesn't need to happen like that. Take your time. Joseph, David, Moses. You know, it wasn't a rush towards leadership. It was a long, slow plod with plenty of falling flat on their faces in the mud in the process. Don't rush. But with those caveats in mind, let's have a think about how broken leadership can be astonishingly beautiful. So, so back in your pairs again, uh, two, threes, whatever you're doing. Um, how can your own personal brokenness, your own struggles with mental health, bring a strength and a clarity and a compassion to ministry that is utterly wonderful? Rejoice in it, brothers and sisters, for a few minutes, and then we'll do a little bit of feedback after two or three minutes. Let's uh, come back together again. I'm sorry your conversation times are getting shorter and shorter, but I'm keeping an eye on the time and uh, we're in danger of running a little late at the moment. Well, I've got a few uh, ideas uh, up there, but what were you coming up with? What are some of the beautiful aspects uh, of a broken leadership? Include what it would avoid. So um, if you're not broken, then you may uh, inadvertently to be someone who has all the answers and giving to people who, who you, you think need the answer, you know. Yes, that guru kind of come to me because I'm sorted yeah. rather than come to Christ because he's beautiful and I'm just one of his followers, sinner saved by grace. Yes, thank you. It's a, a good preventative for that. Yeah. Any other thoughts? There's um, the ability to recognise something in someone else so that... Um, uh, often the hiddenness is lessened because of sort of symptoms or behaviour or, mm. or body language or and but be able to say I, I recognise that you might be going through depression or trauma or so so associating with where they are from experience. Absolutely, it, it gives you a sense of where someone's at. Obviously, we can never assume, but it's a good kind of indicator, isn't it? And it, it's a good conversation opener. Um, I remember the first time someone broke a cup in the church kitchen and burst into tears. I mean, I broke cups in the church kitchen all the time. I never cried once. Uh, it was just a standing joke that I broke cups. But you saw the lady break the cup and burst into tears and start shaking. And instantly think, domestic abuse or something like that's going on at home. There's going to be consequences for breaking something. And that's a context that's not quite right. Um, other other benefits that, that can come from brokenness. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've had several people, including one just last week, tell me how my openness about my mental health, including in one sermon where I mentioned it, has given them confidence to talk in it when they're not doing okay. Oh, praise God. Isn't that wonderful? And it, it, I don't know how you felt the first time you did that. I was utterly terrified the first time there was a microphone and I was about to talk about something personal. In fact, I thought I was going to have to leave my church because, you know, as you're walking down from the talk, there's utter silence. Uh, and you think, that's it. I'm going to have to move. Um, but that was the service where it's like, I'm struggling with addiction too. I'm anxious too. I'm depressed too. I'm struggling too. Can we meet up? Can we pray? Can we have a support group within the church? The openness. Thank you. Thank you for taking that brave stand as well. Yeah. There can be beauties to broken leadership. You know, we, we can, we're just reminded the whole time of our dependence on the Lord. We, we can't do anything without him. Uh, and that will often lead to increased prayerfulness. Not always, let's be honest. But often, you know, if we're tracking it through, uh, then uh, that's, that's a good thing. 
we, we can comfort those people with the comfort that we've received. You know, that's a good biblical principle that Paul sets out for us. You know, and we have maybe a passion for change uh, that some other people might not have. You know, people that have come out of uh, maybe the sex industry have a, a real fire in their belly sometimes for actually stopping the trafficking of human beings. It's personal experience that is driving that desire to see other people uh, change and grow. We have testimony, maybe uh, an increased love uh, of those on the, on the margins. You know, I think that's one reason why I have a real passion for the North Korean community, because I, I can't for a moment relate to what, exactly what they've been through. It's a million miles away from, from my experience. But I, I get that sense of, of being utterly broken and not knowing where to go. And I think that's one of the drivers that, that, that gives me a real heart and a compassion for that community. But also in evangelism as well. You know, there's, there's a real message to hold out. There is beauty in brokenness. And, and of course, you know, whilst we're in ministry, as we are speaking words, uh, and I, I won't go through those R's in any depth, you can always ask me about them later if you want to, but words that help us relate to God, words that help us relate to each other, words that root us in who God is, words that root us in who we are, words that help us refine to become more like Jesus. And that is the bread and butter of our word ministry a lot of the time. As we say that out, to others we we can be listening in on that you know we're preaching to ourselves as much as we're preaching to other people we're, we're doing bible studies for our own benefit as much as we're doing them for other people that's the theory at least and of course we hope in our churches we have people that will say those things to us not everybody needs to know everything but i think in every church I mean, there will be some churches for which this is impossible, but where possible, a small group of people to genuinely know how you are doing. A small group of people who you can genuinely trust, who can actually spot when you're not okay, is so important. Because I, I know those relationships from theological college, from previous churches, I mean, they're, they're wonderful, aren't they? Don't lose them, nurture them. But they're, they're not there every day. They're not there every week. They're not the ones that necessarily will go, hang on a second, you're, you're preaching, your voice modulation, you've got quieter every week for the last month. What's, what's going on? You, you, you've been grumpy in church council meetings. What's, what's going on? Not that that's particularly unusual, but you know what I mean. <laughs> um, there is that sense in which you want people in your church to know. Now, I realise there are exceptions, especially if there's been a really difficult church circumstance uh, where it's not going to be possible to have those relationships of trust right now. Uh, and please don't feel that you're doing something wrong necessarily if you're in that situation. But that, that's the aim. That's, that's where we want to get to. People that can love us right where we're at. Uh, and we want to be sharing stuff, as, as our brother was saying there, quite openly. But as I was saying earlier, share as much as is helpful for the other person to know. We don't want to tip over into glorifying our own problems. I could tell you some great stories about my mess wouldn't help you in the slightest. You'd go away thinking about my disasters rather than Jesus. Um, but actually what we want them to know is in, share enough to know they're not alone. Share enough to know that God is at work. Share enough to know that there is hope. Share enough, don't share more, because then that will help them think about you rather than help them think about Jesus, I think is my basic rule of thumb. But just in our last five minutes or so, Let's think about some pitfalls and some strategies. Maybe let's just shout these out rather than going into groups. What, what are the, some of the dangers of being in ministry and struggling uh, with your mental health? What, what are some of the things that can go wrong? You have a meltdown in front of the person you're trying to help. Yeah, it can happen. It really can, because what they are saying is just so resonating with what you've been through. It touches all those nerves, and you think, I can't do this. The memories come flooding back, and the enormity of it just feels huge. Thankfully, the grace of God is, is quite big enough to cope with situations like that, but clearly we don't want to seek them, um, uh, and if we can actually head them off, um, that's, that's a good thing. Uh, other things that can be a bit of a challenge. I get completely overwhelmed and be unable to keep up like with your job. Yeah. You kind of want to hide it yeah. from people. And that tendency to hide is so strong, isn't it? As people in ministry, we're supposed to be sorted and trusting in the Lord and rejoicing and competent and things. Yeah. Um, and there's that sense in which we want 
to be seen and feel we should be seen as the one that's got it together. But we haven't always. Uh, we haven't always at all. And it can feel overwhelming. It's not just the pressures coming at us that's overwhelming, but the isolation that can feel overwhelming as, all, as well. That sense of not having anywhere to go. Any one of a number of things could shift you from one of those quadrants you have to another. So you could, it's all well with your network of support, your accountability and so on. But any, for, you, could, you could move, the, the, the support could move. It could no longer be practical and suddenly you're vulnerable where before you were supported. So um, yeah. you could shift easily from one to the other. Absolutely. Uh, and that's why a range of different communities is so important, not just relying on, on the one circle of friends or the one community, although all of us will tend towards a certain circle of friends because they're the ones people we love and trust. But yeah, a change in circumstances can have a profound effect. You might be tempted to lean inappropriately on those you're ministering to. Yes, and that can happen in a whole range of different ways. You know, I, either we want our congregation to, to make it better for us, uh, or or there, there can be a sense of entitlement sometimes that actually the congregation should be making it better for us. Uh, or, or it can be a, just a, a much quieter and maybe easier to miss sense of, actually, I'll make myself feel better by making them feel better. Uh, I, I will f bolster my sense of purpose and, and self-worth by, by actually doing ministry well. Uh, and I see that in myself uh, time and again. I have to catch it quickly. We might need to take time off work, of course, no shame at that, but it's not necessarily easy, especially if you're alone in a parish uh, as the only paid member of staff. The sense of isolation, our motivation can go astray. Uh, we can go to um, ungodly coping mechanisms. It, it is an astonishing number of pastors and youth workers who are using things like alcohol and pornography regularly. Uh, and in my ministry, I, I get to chat to people in that situation you know, I love them. I, 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 there's no judgment, but it's, it's not what we're called to be. You know, we're called to be people running to Jesus, uh, not running to those hidden methods uh, of keeping ourselves comforted. Exhaustion, oversensitivity to criticism. You, you know that moment where things just get on top of you. Do you, do you know what your triggers are? For me, it's Disney movies. Um, I can usually watch a Disney movie with the kids uh, that I know well and I'm laughing and joking and it's all happy days. Uh, not necessarily Disney, any cartoon. Get to the end of Happy Feet. Tears streaming down my eyes because the penguins are dancing. Helen is tired. Helen needs a week off when Helen starts crying at the penguins. Now, you're not all going to have that same reaction. I realise we are all wired very differently, but know what your signs and symptoms are. Catch it early. Maybe our, our, when our mental health is going astray, we desire to control situations. If we're feeling really anxious, if that person would just knuckle under and do as they were asked and get that rotor sorted and fill in the gaps, then I would be fine, the church would be fine, the kingdom of God would be fine, but they are messing it up. And quite frankly, if they don't get that rotor sorted now, the kingdom of God is probably going to fall. Now, I realise we don't say that actually out loud, but our thought processes can easily go in that direction. We want to micromanage sometimes when it all gets too much. Or just run. Just don't want to pick up that phone. You, you know that feeling, that phone comes on. You know the number, the name flashes up, your heart sings. Suddenly you're not available. You just hit the red button. You don't want to engage anymore. Bit of impulsiveness, maybe. Maybe you just can't keep going. Well, the reality is that sometimes in ministry, things do get hard, really, really hard, because it's a spiritual warfare. People are messy. We are messy. Uh, it all goes together. Uh, and that high workload, that temptation, to, um, uh, to, temptation not to maintain relationships because you're at a distance, that perception that you ought to be sorted, that temptation to hide, you know, it's easy for sin to escalate. It's easy to neglect ourselves, control others, and to give in to spiritual attack. But what can we do while we're in ministry? Well, just a few thoughts here. Relationships matter. And that includes accountability relationships. And when I say accountability relationships, I'm not talking about those awfully convenient accountability relationships where we meet with people twice a year and we tell them what we want them to know and allow them to affirm us and encourage us in those accountabilities. Now, sometimes they are very open and honest. Sometimes we hide everything. Or maybe you're more godly than me. But there is that temptation. 
Relationships where people can observe you and speak into your life about what they see. Both the good and the not so good. Encouragements, not just challenges. Have that depth of relationship. It might be within your family. It might be leadership within your church. It might be someone within your church that's a senior person in a parachurch organisation. It might be friends from theological college that you're in some kind of regular contact with. It might be a fraternal locally. Um, Have people that can speak in. Have a right sense of openness about struggles. We do not need to be sorted. I mean, it's best if we're not sobbing in the pulpit every Sunday, but we don't need to be sorted. We don't need to have got it right. And be honest with people you trust about the fact that it can go very wrong. Model repentance for when it goes right. I'm astonished the number of mature Christians that don't know how to repent, because it's kind of assumed. But show people, I'm really sorry, I got so grumpy in church council last month. I, I, do, I want to just say that my behaviour wasn't right. Um, there was stuff going on in my heart, and I, I just share a little bit about that with you. Uh, I, I seek your forgiveness. Please pray for me. Don't need to do that every time, publicly. But sometimes model that. Encourage other people to model it to you as well. Because there will be moments when you very much need to be repented too, uh, because people have hurt uh, you. Just take care of yourself, regular meals, exercise, willingness to care for your body and mind. I often joke that I have a ministry stomach, which means it can quite happily go without 10 hours without food or or quite happily eat three cooked meals in a day because that's just what parachurch ministry is like. Um, But we need to be taking care of ourselves. Basic fuel for our bodies and minds. And have roles that fit with our capacity. Not everyone needs to be an incumbent. Not everyone needs to be ordained. There's a whole world of Christian service out there uh, that doesn't involve either of those things. It's not shameful to go in any of those directions. Church ministry is brilliant. Overseas ministry is brilliant. Being behind the scenes, the person that's praying, the person that's administrating, that's wonderful too. Go for what your gifts are and your capacity are. And that is looking at your family capacity as well, not just you personally. Uh, because uh, they matter in all those decisions. Be able to put wise boundaries down. It is okay to have a day off. I mean, really have a day off. Not a day off where you're just going over the sermon one last time or just picking up uh, the last little bit of that safeguarding referral or or just finishing off the conference talk because you realise you've got to go to Northampton tomorrow and you haven't quite finished it in time. (laughs) We need to have realistic views of how our struggles are impacting the ministry as well. Let people you trust in your congregation tell you how your anxiety and depression is impacting. People you trust, not a free-for-all, people you trust in your, in your church. And rest and review all the time. That was a whirlwind. I'm sorry, I mistimed that ever so slightly. Um, but we've got 10 minutes now before lunch. I suggest we probably should actually draw a line and therefore people that want to flee can. Uh, but I'm happy to just stand here and natter Uh, for 10 minutes with people one-on-one. But why don't I pray as we stop? Father God, thank you that you are a God who cares about our mental health because you care about us, because you are a father who is loving and who delights in his children. And I pray, Lord, for those of us uh, in situations where we are caring for those with significant mental illness, that you will help us to be, you will sustain us and provide us with wisdom. You will help us to keep on loving Uh, in ways that are bounded, but in ways that are unendingly kind. But I pray for us too, who are in ministry and are struggling ourselves, Lord, that you will help us to keep turning to you, that you will provide us with the the divine and the human support that we need, that you will help us to take wise strategies so we can thrive in ministry. And and Lord, if if there are any of us that need to take a step back for a little while, help us to, to take that brave and humble step for your glory and for the good of all around. Father, meet us all where we're at, we pray, and lead us evermore into the likeness of your Son. Amen. Amen.